Dr. Doreen, my son is five years old. He mm -hmm. constantly sings echolalia songs through his day. He will do this for automatic reinforcement, but the majority of the time it is to avoid a man. I love how specific you guys are getting and how much jargon you're using. It makes me very excited. Uh, the, the parent goes on to say, this is disrupting education and therapy to the point where the teachers are unable to access the kindergarten curriculum and the therapists are unable to get anywhere with him. Should I remove all electronics and instruments from his environment, iPad, TV, computer, keyboards, instruments? I love that my son loves music so much, but it is now becoming a distraction and I don't know what to do. He's amazing at playing by ear on the piano and while I want to encourage his love of music, it is getting in the way. Help, what do I do? Now also on the Facebook, we had a question that came in also about echolalia. Here's the question for Dr. Doreen. My son is nine and has ASD. He does what we call video talk and he does this constantly all day. It's delayed echolalia by definition, but he uses it both functionally and randomly. How do we get him to use his words and not video? Mm -hmm. So kind of related, but uh, and I, I, I wanted to bring them both up because different circumstances, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old, one who's doing songs, one who's doing, as they call it, delayed echolalia by definition. Uh, so what can we do to help these families, Dr. Gramshay? So it's actually, um, they're, although they're, they both, I mean, this is a great example because the topography of the behavior, so how the behavior looks mm -hmm. is the same in both cases. Mm -hmm. It's some form of repeating of something that we hear, so echolalia of some form. Mm -hmm. But um, they're actually quite different, and how you deal with the two situations is quite different as well. Great. Because the, the second parent, the one that you read from Facebook, mm -hmm. echolalia, in that case, um, the parent is telling us that it's basically, um, and that's the common type of echolalia you see where uh, a child will hear something on TV and then they'll be so uh, intrigued by it, I guess, or uh, it just makes sense to them somehow. So they keep repeating it. And sometimes it's in context and sometimes it's not. So the fact that sometimes it's in context, so like for instance, um, let's say, I don't know, some of our kids will repeat something that's like an interesting saying, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you got two birds with one stone or something like that, right? And it's because they heard it and at that time it was interesting. Or it could be anything. It could be a statement out of a Disney film. A lot of our kids will just repeat lines. And the fascinating thing is that it just makes sense sometimes. When they say it, it's the perfect place to put it. You right. Know? So that is a sign that the child's trying very hard to communicate. Okay. Great. So generally, I wouldn't want to treat it as just any other type of meaningless echolalia. I would probably stop the child and try to tell the child how are some other ways we can say that or you know repeat it in different ways and so on um, or alternatively if it gets to the point where it's very very time consuming and the child is doing it all the time and it's just it's becoming very uh, let's say repetitive and extremely you know taking up a large part of the child's time of the day or life and so on then I would really try to uh, immediately replace it with some other type of behavior or direct the child to some appropriate conversation when many years ago when we were a little bit less um, 
advanced an ABA, let's say, you know, 30 years ago, one of the things we would do was just have the child uh, do some other type of verbal activity that wouldn't allow that. That's you know. So you're, what you're doing is having the child do a behavior that's incompatible right. with echolalia. And the only thing that would be is actually stuff like singing, mm -hmm. saying the alphabet, something else, mm -hmm. um, or forcing the child into some sort of appropriate social uh, dialogue. So. You know, echolalia, pure echolalia is sort of cl still classified under the heading of stereotypical repetitive behaviors or self-stimulatory behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we don't know a whole lot of, about them, so, you know, so the, the way that they're dealt with is just essentially try to block, try to redirect, try mm -hmm. to replace the behavior. Um, in my mind, um, there's many different types of self-stimulatory behavior and you can classify them. Sometimes kids do them just because they're trying to communicate like this. Yeah. Sometimes they do them because they're anxious, so they will line up objects or do types of repetitive things that make them feel more in control. Sometimes kids do them because they're in pain. I mean, yeah. echolalia has its own purpose or any kind of self-stimulatory behavior has its own purpose. Now. In, this, in the first case, uh -huh. the interesting thing was that mom said, I think there was a statement, and I assume it's mom, but mom or dad, parents said, uh, the child does this now to avoid something else. Mans. Yeah, to avoid yeah. manding. And manding means making requests. Right. So uh, mans are, you know, I want juice or I want to go out or those types of things. And they could be full sentence or they could be just one word. It could be voc uh, visual. It doesn't matter. Manding means basically requesting things. It could be spontaneous or not spontaneous. That means you could request something if it's right in front of you only, mm -hmm. or it could be spontaneous where you request it even if it's not present visually. And so you, you recall it. I want, you know, to go to Disneyland later, whatever. So, but if the child is specifically repeating uh, songs or singing songs in order to avoid something else, then what did we just say? We just said the function is avoidance. Mm -hmm. So mom clarified that for us. Right. And if the echolalia has a function that is clear, then really it automatically splits off from all different other types of self-stimulatory behavior, right? Because with self-stimulatory behavior, we're not very clear on them and scientifically you know, from, a, from a science research perspective all self-stimulatory behavior is called automatically reinforced behavior in other words just by doing the behavior there's a reinforcement built in right okay which that's a whole different discussion <laughs> for me i mean it's true though in the sense that let's say if you are anxious and you do a compulsive type of behavior like lining things up it is reducing the anxiety. So it's internally, automatically reinforcing just doing the behavior. Yeah. But if you're doing the behavior in order to avoid another thing, then the function is avoidance. Okay. And then you drop back to your knowledge of basic ABA, which is when a function of, an, of a behavior is avoidance, the treatment is do not allow the child to avoid the thing that they're trying to avoid and rather give the child some other way of telling you that they'd like to avoid this. Okay. So 
in this case that means that you would not allow so even if the child is singing and so on then you would and they're not requesting because they are singing then yeah you probably want to reduce all the technology or other things that are leading that are leading to that and or even you might even want to withdraw them whenever the child starts singing yeah. so it becomes somewhat of a punitive type thing where hey response costs essentially if you start singing when you're not supposed to I'm going to remove these objects yeah and then you might also want to make it easier for the child to mend so that it's a very fluent and and easy response um, that would take the place of singing. So that means like you could visually prompt a band or you could actually even vocally uh, have the child imitate a request. Okay. And that way they won't drop down to doing something else in order to avoid it. Now that was kind of a complicated long <laughs> response, I apologize, but the two things, yes, even though they're both questions. echolalia or some form of cell symmetry, they actually sounded pretty different. Absolutely. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And so I, I, what I want to get back to, though, is the, the mom's emotion in the first question about she loves the fact that he right. loves music so yeah, much. Yeah. But even if she takes away things for a period of time, it's not forever, right? No, and, and you can also limit it to certain times of the day. Okay. So you can say, just like anything else, like our kids, we don't necessarily allow them to have access to computers all day long but we will definitely want our kids to have access or like a TV show all our all of our kids will say yes you can watch TV from 6 to 7 tonight that's it every night you can have TV from 6 to 7 same thing here so you could absolutely have a you know free period where your child can be engaged in musical activities have all those things back etc etc but a certain time of the day um, you can also make it contingent upon certain behaviors so like if you don't uh, if you you know if you do really well on your mans, uh -huh. then you can have uh, your musical stuff for an hour today. You know, so you can do all kinds of stuff. You don't have to eliminate music or you know this technology from the entire day. I'm just guessing too that when they want that technology, we would make them manned for it appropriately without singing. Definitely, correct? definitely. Okay. And, in, and in all cases, you'd want to be making sure that the child is manning appropriately. Yeah. Okay, really interesting. We are going to take a break and then we're going to come back with more of your questions after these messages. Stick with us. Welcome back to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampichet is with us and she is answering your questions in real time. All you have to do is go to www.autism-live.com. There is a box there where you can type in your questions or you can go to Facebook. In both places, that is completely free. We're not asking for your personal information. It can be completely anonymous, um, but it is a wonderful way to have your questions answered by a true expert in the field of autism. So Dr. Grampuche, we had a question that just came in on the live feature. Uh, Dear Shannon and Dr. Doreen, I'd like to know how I can help my child age six currently mainstream with a shadow does disruptive self-talk singing, repeating random words in class. However, most of the time it's quite, uh, it's quiet and sitting nicely. It is that maybe we are not reinforcing enough the good behavior or what best technique can we use to avoid it? Frequency uh, variation, I think is what you're trying to say. There are, uh, frequency varies, excuse me. There are good days and bad days. She is high functioning. So, uh, you know, it seems to be that that morning for the, the noises that kids are making one way or the other. We're right. getting a lot of quish, uh, questions about that. Well, that's this is a, a pretty straightforward one and all you 
it would really because what you're wanting the child to do your child to do instead is just to be quiet because mm -hmm. they're in the classroom so you just build that behavior okay. it's automatically incompatible with the singing or making noises so you shape that up so you start with what how long of a period is she actually able to stay quiet sit calmly and quietly and that's your baseline and then you will increase it every let's say five seconds and reward that 10 seconds reward that and gradually increase it so it gets to whatever period of time that you want the child to be sitting quietly and um, you know if they fail and the instruction is just uh, sit quietly and listen and so and I would increase the content the things or the contextual cues so like for instance um, or I should say the contextual distractions. So initially you might be practicing just sitting um, quietly in a room and let's say the child's okay for three minutes and that's your baseline and then you start increasing that baseline three five minutes and I don't think that you want to really increase it past ten minutes I think if your child needs accommodations at school you can also request that so mm -hmm. that they actually allow the kids to get up and do something after every ten minutes but um, having said that, it's, if your child gradually shapes up and is able to be calm and quiet for 10 minutes, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will also be able to sit calm and quiet in school, in a classroom. So you do want to start to gradually increase the, the contextual distractions that are um, in a classroom. So for instance, you might want to have classroom sounds tape recorded and just play them in the background while you're practicing sitting calmly with your child. You might want to have, uh, you know, a lot of people around, that sort of thing, just so that you are sure that your child can actually stay calm and pay attention. And of course, the, the more interesting the distraction is, like if the teacher perhaps could put the child in the front mm -hmm. so that there's less distraction if the teacher could you know try to accommodate the child uh, by paying by getting the child to pay attention certain cues that would help a lot some of the things we've done in the past we've also like for instance had a, um, a sticker let's say on the board um, in the classroom which is very benign like let's say I don't know a green circle or something mm -hmm. and that is the stimulus that um, or or will anything a color mm -hmm. and we'll say to the child everything every time you see green it's a reminder to pay attention to the teacher and those types of things work very very well with our kids mm -hmm. there's even watches that are on the watch minder they're large ones and they say you can program them to every 10 minutes 15 minutes whatever and it'll literally write on the watch it's a digital and it'll just say, you know, look at teacher mm. or pay attention, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of different environmental cues like the watch or colors or objects in the environment that you can teach the child would be cues to pay attention. Fascinating because we are all tied to our smartphones now that yeah. have alarms that tell it, remind us to do this, that, or the right, other thing. Right, right. And why not have that for our kids? Right. I didn't realize there were watches that yeah, did that. Yeah, and they've been around for ages. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Okay, we've had another question that came in just now. Uh, someone saying, my 16-year-old child is having dif a very difficult time with change. Her babysitter that she has had since she was a baby is moving about an hour away from our home. This sitter is also a close family member. Help, all in caps, with two exclamation points. She can't communicate her feelings to us. How old? How old? 16. 16-year-old? 16 16-year-old 16 having a difficult time with change. Wow. Yes. That's a huge time frame to have had a person. Okay. Yes. 
So first observation is that I think this is going to be more traumatic for the parents than the, than the child. Um, I remember my first uh, sort of au pair, you know, or nanny who helped with my first child. Mm -hmm. And after being here for a year and she left, I was like devastated. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to handle this, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, being having been dependent on one person to help with everything for 16 years mm -hmm. is massive. So. Yeah. The first thing I want to tell you as a parent is just don't be afraid because it's not going to be as bad as you think. Mm -hmm. You'll be fine. And there's a lot of really, really competent people who can step in and help and take over. Um, sometimes just the fear of change um, paralyzes us to the point where we don't even want to pay attention to the fact that what we have is not necessarily the best. Right. So because we'd just rather avoid any change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't worry. Maybe the next person that comes into your child's life is going to be even better. You, yeah. you don't know. Just wait and see. Um, second thing is, you know, uh, ideally, if there's any kind of overlap period, if you can hire someone who's the replacement and then try to do overlap with your child, that would be great um, so that the two are there together and that the, the old person, the person that she's known for a long time, gradually reduces time as the new person increases time. Um, I would recommend that you have the new person go through our basic training on IBT. There's, you know, you can pick and choose these modules on our Institute for Behavioral Training website. Mm -hmm. And the more the new person understands ABA, which really I think ABA is the language of autism, like, you know, communicating with our kids. Mm -hmm. um, and the more they understand that, the better they'll get along with your with your 16 year old and the more your 16 year old will felt will feel understood. Um, and so that's what I would really recommend is that you just don't fear, you, you never know. Make sure the new person, give yourself plenty of time to interview people and uh, try to find someone. I don't know where you live. Um, I, uh, you know, and I, and I assume the person you're looking for, like, a, a, I don't know, maybe a caretaker or something like that. Um, there's a website called care.com, which has a lot of uh, applicants, people just post their application and information there and you can look there to get help. She has sent some more information. Uh, she says this move is starting to affect her at school and she also further wrote, I think it's the change that is bugging her the worst. Dad is home for her after school. So she does have dad there, um, but that they're seeing a change in school. Yeah, and it's hard because sometimes our kids do become extremely connected to one person. And I have to tell you, whether it's now or later, sooner or later, your child would have to yeah. acclimate to other people and understand that there are going to be other people. It's, it's just, it's a tough phase. But, you know, yeah. keep her busy. Uh, the more busy she is, if you can actually write out maybe, you know, 10 minute intervals. I'm sure that when dad's there, maybe he's busy with other things mm -hmm. and not necessarily engaged with her as much i don't really know but you know try to think of the key characteristics of the caretaker that she that was with her who was with her um, was this someone who talked a lot then that's what you're looking for is this someone who you know would do um, calming activities with her and that's what you're looking for but in general if you can try to list the you know segments of time 10 15 minute activities 
um, I think it would be very helpful for your daughter to, to transition. Absolutely. But just think of it this way, transitioning or being able to transition and behave with other people the same way is a good thing. So yeah. you're, what you're doing, which you're forced to do right now, but what you're doing is you are helping your daughter generalize and yeah. learn to deal with other people. And I, I don't know if this is true for all kids, but I know one of the things when Jem was really, and even now, sometimes he'll have difficulty accessing what emotion, although he tends to be better at it than I am <laughs> now, because one of the things that we would do is when something was happening, we would language it for him when he right. was little and say, right. you're feeling sad, right. you're feeling frustrated, you're Correct. feeling upset, or you know, you're feeling lonely or you're feeling left out, whatever it is. Um, and I don't, I think that that really helped him because now he is able to language those things. But I, it really helped me too, to be able to say, because if he was in pain, I think when our children are in pain, it becomes an all over pain for us. Yes. And for me to be able to say to him, what you're feeling is sad and you're feeling sad because X, Y, and Z, and you're entitled to feel sad in that moment. It kind of calmed me and yeah. let me realize this isn't the end of the world. Yes. He's feeling sad. And while yeah. sad is not a pleasant thing, people don't die from feeling sad as right. a rule. Right. Um, and, and so in that way, I, I don't, I think it helped both of us. Is that something, the that's languaging so things? That's, that... that's such a great point you make, Shannon. And absolutely. I mean, helping our kids identify how they feel is a big, big deal. And I have to apologize because that's a whole different side of this question that I didn't respond to. And you're, mm. I'm glad that you brought it up because there are a million things that you as a parent can do to help your child emotionally get through this. And one of the things is really just labeling it for your child, helping your child understand how they feel and that that feeling will not last forever, mm -hmm. I suppose. And another thing is just, you know, if, if you're worried about the emotional aspects of this for your child, then I would really... Um, we're so blessed right now with technology. I would set up things like every, you know, twice a week, we will be doing Skype with her. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how you'll see her and talk to her. And you might want to initially start doing that even right now and do it every day and then gradually reduce it and alternate, you know, the times so that your child doesn't feel very deprived. Mm -hmm. And you should just, you know, call the person frequently. Let your child know that they're still around mm -hmm. and when possible will visit so that the child's not afraid of losing the person forever. Mm -hmm. But you have a really good point. I mean, there are so many things we like that, like identifying for the child what yeah. they feel. That's very helpful to get through it. Well, I didn't invent it. You're a therapist yeah. gave that, <laughs> that to yeah, us. It's good. But I just didn't know if it's something that we can do with all kids or whether Absolutely. it was specific to my son. Absolutely. Uh, but I did find it really helpful. We still, we still do that. Because things happen in life that you don't have control over. I'm thinking about when my mom passed away last year and, and trying to find the way to language that for myself, let alone my child, yeah, you know, we're yeah. still talking about it on a daily basis. And, and of course with our kids, I think a lot of times we have an expectation, oh, it's going to come out in this way. Right. It never does. Right. It comes out in some weird, bizarre right. way that, you know, and then we're able to think, oh, okay, that's a reaction to this. That's true. Um, you know, that you would think if, if she was coming home and spending the time at home with this person, that that's the moment that you would see the reaction. But instead, yeah. she's having difficulty at school. And, and it's often that the, anything that causes change, 
just puts us in turmoil for a while, you yeah. know? And so the opposite of change being sort of stability or routine, those types of things will help. So yeah. if you have an other routines that you can establish, you know, every day at five o'clock, we're going to go do this, yeah. whatever it is. Any type of routine or like putting on a schedule that every Wednesday you're going to do Skype with this yeah. person. Those things will tend to make your child feel more safe. Yeah, the know? coping mechanisms, the things Absolutely. we would do for ourselves. Exactly, right. And so right. great to give them a set of coping skills as well. Right. Wonderful advice. We wish you the best of luck with that. And please Trust let us know how that goes. On. We're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we'll continue to answer the questions that you guys have been writing in and having Dr. Grampache give you her thoughts. Stick with us. Welcome back to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampache is here with us answering your questions in real time. We have all these questions piling in, um, but I want to start with one about giggling because they've written in several time, uh, times. Uh, my son is six years old, diagnosed with autism. He has various stereotypical behaviors. For example, he wakes up very giggly in the mornings. He continues this behavior at school. Usually this inappropriate laughter diminishes throughout the day. I would like to know what technique to use to extinguish it in all settings. Any advice is greatly appreciated. I, I just have to say, don't you love it when they say, I want to extinguish this in all settings? I'm so proud of you guys. <laughs> I love the language that's coming in. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, gosh, I, I, if, I, I w if it was my child, I'd probably want to know a little bit more about what's causing it. I, um, giggling is not a very common type of behavior that would, in other words, the assumption we make as behaviorists is that the child is giggling in order to avoid other things or escape other things or so on, or it's just what we call, you know, self-symmetry or whatever. But I'd still want to know a little bit more about it because to me, it's, I'd like to know some of the physiology of the child. I'd like to take a blood test. I'd like to see if the child has yeast issues. Um, a lot of our kids that giggle for no reason, and especially when we're talking about it starts as soon as the child wakes up and it starts going down during the course of the day, you know, you're not really avoiding anything when you wake up. And it's kind of like, okay, what's going on with the child? I'd want to look at some more, uh, you know, blood tests, some measures to see how the child's doing in terms of yeast, but also like sleep pattern perhaps and... Um, I'm not sure the diet of the child, you know, sugar and certain types of food additives tend to make us a little bit more silly or are toxic to our mm -hmm. kids. Um, those are things that I would look at before trying to uh, stop the behavior altogether. And then, of course, you know, from this email, I can't really tell what the function is. Yeah. I'd want, I would have to identify what the function of behavior is. So if the parent wants to write in a little bit more detail about what you think um, is the function or the reason the child's doing it. And if you can't find a function, if you can't tell why the child's doing it, because especially because they're doing it in multiple settings, mm -hmm. then I would really suggest that you start look, talking first to a medical doctor and make sure that everything is um, good with the child's uh, blood work and so on. Great advice. I know I read that question and, and I, because First of my experience, thought. I smelled yeast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
when you've seen a child with yeast issues, then you kind of know this. It becomes an automatic. It's just the child becomes like almost as if they're drunk. Yeah. And they're just constantly like giggling and walking around a little bit sort of, you know, silly and everything becomes very distracting. Yeah. So that's where I would first want to double great, check. Great advice. We've got another question here that's very interesting to me. Do you ever recommend therapy breaks? My son's speech therapist recommended my son take a three to six month break because he was no longer working for her in therapy. He is five and started therapy when he was 18 months and has continued OT and speech therapy since. Okay, no. <laughs> I would never... <laughs> I would not recommend a therapy break. This is not like a medication where you need a drug holiday or something, no. Uh, therapy breaks tend to make things worse. Um, our kids often lose skills during therapy breaks and then coming back to therapy tends to become more difficult. Um, if the child is not working for the speech therapist, I would change the speech therapist and I would increase hours because sometimes things start to drag out when it's just one or two, three hours a week instead of what it's supposed to be, which is more like 15 to 20, 30 hours a week. So it's sort of like, you know, try, if, you, if, if someone tries to teach me Chinese and they're only doing it one hour a week, it's going to be the next 10 years. With me, it's probably going to be the next 20 years, who knows? But I would get sick of it probably pretty soon and I'll be wanting to do other things. But if they hit it pretty intensely, it's more likely that I get to levels that are intriguing and interesting or useful faster um, and then I might keep going. And, and I don't know how long your child's worked with this speech therapist, but it's the job of the therapist to keep things interesting um, and so I never can say he's stopped working for me I don't know what that means and I don't know what we hope to ga gain from taking a break from it I would really seriously try to find someone else and, and I, I'm so thrilled to hear you say that because um, you know I think sometimes people get tired. Absolutely. And because something isn't reinforcing enough to them. That's right. And therapy needs to be fun. Right. So, you know. And if somebody isn't, if they've lost the ability to have a child work, that would be my first question as an ex-teacher is, you know, has this person lost their passion for doing this kind of work? Do they need a break? Right. right. <laughs> you know, is that what's happening here? They they need the break. But, you know, if your exactly child has a right. prescription exactly. for, you know, then you're, that's what your child needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And somebody who can get it done and is in a place of passion where they want to get it done. And, and because they're passionate about it, they actually make Make it a lot more fun yes and uh, much more reinforcing and rewarding and then both people are enjoying it you know so maybe a therapy break from this professional yeah <laughs> all right uh, now our, our other parent who had the child who giggles in the morning wrote back some more great, information great. they wrote back he's GFCF organic no preservatives dyes diet he sleeps 10 to 11 hours at night we went to a Dan doctor and found out that he has yeast we tried many treatments but couldn't get rid of it right and that's usually the case yeast is pretty difficult um, my recommendation for this and I don't it doesn't I'm not sure if your child's been treated with medication for yeast so you know 
typically we're looking at nizerol, nystatin, the most benign, nizerol, diflucan, that sort of stuff. And a lot of the physicians will do very, will do lower doses for a long period of time, mm -hmm. which really does help our kids. And you know what? I will, if you, if your child, if you do an antifungal medication and you see a huge difference in your child, during that time and then they cycle out when the uh, you know a few days or 10 days up to 10 days after the medication is finished then you know for sure the giggling is related to yeast so and that would could be yeast die off too i mean i don't know how long you've done this diet but it could be that your child is eliminating yeast and as he as they're eliminating yeast there's a higher level of yeast circulating in the blood or fungal infections and so that's what's causing this giggling and over time if you keep up with the treatment and the diet and so on things will change but my recommendation get in touch with julie matthews there you go and julie will help you julie is a very very awesome dietitian and um, we can give you her information. She's been on this show before. Yes. And uh, I find that yeast is one of those things that our dietitians are better at helping. Like our experts in diet and nutrition, they're so good at telling you exactly what foods to avoid and what foods to eat. I'm not talking about the gluten-free aspect of it. That's right. good. But they specifically will tell you certain fruits, for instance, that are increasing yes. the yeast and so on, and they'll uh, help you. Um, I have had people who have told me in the past that if their child goes on a specific carb diet, it helps the yeast. Um, so there are other diets that you should be looking at, and Julie is a perfect place to, to get advice. Absolutely. You can find her at nourishinghope.com. And I will say, because I, I mentioned before, my son has yeast issues, ongoing yeast issues. We've been GFCF, organic, all of those things. But we still, especially when he was younger, had to monitor the fruit yeah. uh, in a big way. You gave yeah. him one orange, and that it, was, a, it huh? was as if he had drunk a fifth of brandy. Yeah. We called him the drunken elf. <laughs> It, we and because he couldn't stand up straight and yeah. you know he, yeah. Uh, yeah so I, I love that talk to Julie Matthews nourishinghope.com all right we're going to take another short break and we'll be back more with Dr. Grandpache after these messages welcome back to Autism Live and to ask Dr. Doreen Dr. Doreen Grandpache is here with us live in the studio taking your questions in real time somebody has written in this morning how can I get my child to talk more especially when it comes to what she did at school that day she is five mainstreamed in a private at school and doing pretty good at school but trying to get information from her about her day is like pulling teeth <laughs> she will tell me to stop asking her questions or to leave her alone when I ask her what she did that day and if she responds it's only routine answers like we played recess and they said thank you very much for taking their question sure it's a little bit um, I mean I'll give you the basic answer okay. but it's a little bit more complicated and I would really recommend that this person uh, maybe get a month's uh, subscription or a couple of months subscription to skills and um, look at these lessons and I'm trying to remember the name the new names because you know traditionally we used to call this lesson tell me about uh -huh. and describe and it was two sides of a lesson describe something and tell me about something but anyway I'm sure you can find them um, in the curriculum I think we would have put them under either language or social. I'm not sure. It was just, okay. you know, where did we feel like it was appropriate to put this particular okay. lesson? But 
Um, what you want to do really is you want to start with a visual cue. So you'd want to have some sort of a schedule or, you know, just some sort of a, um, I guess a list and you can have um, just segments of the day, I suppose. And the classroom or the class schedule would, would be what you follow. So like, you know, morning or during um, recess or whatever activities are there. So that's how you kind of segment, uh, you know, put it into sections. And then you uh, perhaps have your child fill in the things. So at least you're giving your child sort of a cue of um, shorter periods of time. So like uh, what, what happened during lunch? What happened during uh, recess? What happened during whatever? And yeah, it is hard for our kids. And if you're not there, I mean, this is one of the benefits for us because when our kids are at this level, we have our aides there. And whether it's a actual known aid, so the child knows that this is an aid for them, or if it's a confederate aid, so it's an aid that the child doesn't even know is there for them, mm -hmm. we get a list, we get an observation of the child every day, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have someone there. And you could ask the teacher to help with that and tell you some like three or four things a day in a journal so that you can prompt. But unless you know, it's going to be very hard for you to get those out of your child. Now, prompting them once you know like three things, significant things that happen that day that's very easy because then you can just visually like you know have a drawing or write words or pictures of people or whatever it is that you use to kind of aid your child in recalling what happened it's not that your child doesn't recall the information they do um, they might not have it in the correct order in their head they might expect you to know it because they're having theory of mind problems mm -hmm. so this is one of the issues we find with our kids is they have a hard time uh, understanding why you're even asking that because from their perspective you should know what they've been doing all day <laughs> right perspective taking that's right. the problem uh, so it's easy enough to prompt the responses and that's as I said in our tell me about our describe program but and as you know, these other programs that I mentioned, like describe starts a little bit more basic. So you want to make sure your child actually has the vocabulary to describe this sort of thing. You know, so a lot of attributes and verbs and nouns and so on. So the child is not avoiding language just because it's hard for them to pick the right words. Um, but at the same time, once you're at that phase, the, the next phase of your child being, once your child is able to say three or four things, the next thing becomes saliency, which is another lesson in our executive function mm -hmm. curriculum. Saliency is now for the child to d identify what's actually the important thing that happened. Like when you come home, you're not going to tell your parent, um, I went to the bathroom and washed my hands. It's something you did, but it's not important enough to tell. And the saliency lesson in skills is where your child learns to actually identify what are the unique things that happened that day versus the routine things. And so that's a whole different level of lessons, which is just too long to go into here. 
So I don't know really where your child is. If they're, if it's just getting them to recall, I would first get them to recall events using visual prompts. And then after that, I would work on saliency and what are the more important things or the unique things that happen. But I love the idea of asking the school to let you know a couple of things to prime that right, prompt. I've right. totally forgotten that we did that for a while. And yeah. It was very successful. You need that. Otherwise, yes. there's, I mean, how are you yeah. going to know? Yeah, because you don't know what to ask. And yeah. you don't always understand what's being told back to you unless you have a context for it exactly. in the beginning. So exactly. very helpful. Now, we did have the parent write back the one that we were talking about taking a therapy break. Oh, yeah. They wrote back and said, but what if he stopped working for all of his therapists? Is this the same advice? And so I have this uh, additional question that it seems a lot of parents will write in. And I remember the moment we got to this point with Jem where he didn't want to do therapy anymore. He was he was done. In terms of his head, he was done. But he wasn't done in terms of the goals that we had for him. And I remember uh, Sienna Greener-Wooten was spending a couple of minutes with him, and she is amazing, one of the most passionate people on the face of the planet, knows how to work with a kid, how to motivate them. And uh, he said, I don't want to do this. And Sienna said, okay, I get that. I hear that. But here are the three things that you have to show to us that you know how to do. And, and once I'll, you do that, then you don't off. have to do this anymore. Right, right. right. And then he went, oh, okay. And then he did it. Right. And if you think about it, exactly what Sienna was doing was she was identifying. Jem's telling you, I don't want to do this. That means right. I would like to avoid this or right. escape from this mm -hmm. altogether. Okay. And Sienna's doing what a behavior should do, which is saying, no problem. That's the function. That's what you want. But in order to get that, yeah. these three things have to happen. Yeah. So this is what I really want from you. And then you can avoid seeing me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And in this case, when I hear that a bunch of therapists, then I would just say the program is not rewarding. So the, either the complexity of the program or... You just need to get to a level where it's a little bit more fun. You know, the number one thing, if you don't have adequate reinforcers in a program, then it doesn't work. Right. Pack it up and go home. Reinforcement. So evaluate your child's uh, program altogether and make sure that the therapists are extremely rewarding. Yeah. And if your child's at the point, like Jem, for instance, and they understand that there's X, Y, and Z left, and if they do these things, then they can avoid therapy then use that as a reinforcer. Otherwise, just increase reinforcers. Uh, you know, make it a little bit more fun and make it functional. Our kids tend to everybody. You get bored if you keep memorizing stuff that's useless. Yeah. So make sure that it becomes useful. When your child learns something from therapy, make sure they benefit from it in some additional way. And that's long-term reinforcement rather than just you know short-term reinforcers right now. So it's something having to do with the program. It's nothing will, it's taking a break will not solve the problem. Okay. Uh, we have time for one more short question. Is Rett's syndrome related a related disorder to autism? Yeah, well, it used to be. It's not anymore classified. It is it, it, only in that the behaviors that are exhibited, so the topography looks similar. Rett's used to be classified under the uh, pervasive developmental disorders in autism in Diagnostic Manual 4R. 4 and 4R and 3 and for what long time. It has now been separated because there is a very clear genetic component to it. Um, so it's it's been pulled out. Uh, RETS is uh, easier to diagnose simply because there's, you know, biological testing where you can diagnose RETS. 
having said that, uh, it's, it's a little bit more, I guess our kids tend to have more severe symptoms if they actually are diagnosed with RETS. Um, however, they still also do benefit from ABA, from therapy. I do have a lot of children who have RETS and, um, and they will exhibit similar behaviors. They will do very well with ABA. So now it's no longer classified as one of the ASDs. Okay, I think a lot of times as parents we get caught up in the, in, label. In the label of, you know, well, if it's this, does it mean this and is it related to, but what I just heard you say is that the answer in all these cases is to get good quality ABA therapy. It is, but I mean, it is also in that sense, knowing that your child has RETS is important because it is a genetic uh, issue and there are certain other treatments that you're going to want to keep an eye on okay. with anything else it's sort of like you know if you know your child your child has certain behaviors but you also know that they have seizure disorder mm -hmm. or you know so it's important to know the medical obviously and to keep an eye on it and then make sure that you're uh, like for instance there's research going on right now at UCLA um, for kids with rats and you'd want to be part of those types of things because they're groundbreaking and if, if they should find something that's going to be helpful you want to know that but at the same time the real answer is just yeah seeing if this technique works to teach your child and I guarantee you I mean ABA works for everyone not just kids with autism so I guarantee you this is a very good way to teach your child.